0: Ask kickers. Welcome to another edition of the podcast. I am so glad that you're here. And today is another recovery episode. We are getting towards the end actually for this season, the 10 episodes that I did 10 last year. And I'm doing another 10 for this round. Thank you so much for those of you who are here and sharing these with people that you feel need to hear them. I am so incredibly grateful for that. Today, of course, obviously, I have another story about addiction, and this one is a little bit about alcohol, it's a lot about pills, and it's a lot about love addiction, and I'm super excited to have you hear that conversation. But before we jump into that, we start on Monday, 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 January 22nd, coming up, the free book club that I have opened up for y'all. Anyone who purchases a copy of How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, 14 Habits that are holding you back from happiness, which is out now, by the way, Woohoo! You are invited to come with us for this free book study that I have put together. It's in an effort to support you through reading this book. There's a lot of stuff in this book, many, many behaviors, 14 of them to be exact, that all of us, all of us engage with in some form or another. And there are lots of tools and strategies in there to change that behavior, to learn to manage that behavior, to do things that actually line up with who you really want to be and make you proud of the woman that you are. I want to assist you on this journey and I don't want this to be just another self-help book that you buy and don't read or that you read really quickly and don't do anything to actually change your life. This book club is free for anyone that purchases a copy of the book. Head on over to yourkickasslife.com H-T-S-F-L-S. That's an acronym for how to stop feeling like shit. Of course, that Link is over in the show notes, along with everything else that you'll hear in this episode. So I hope to see you over there. Yay! And make 2018 your best year yet. So before we jump into this episode, let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. <laughs> Lara Frazier is a healer and truth teller, a sobriety warrior, a speaker, and a pig mama. She is a fierce believer in the power of owning our stories and is a strong advocate for addiction recovery. Lara shares a story of healing in sobriety through addiction, in life and love, and in all other big, huge moments of fear and magic that we rarely talk about, but we should. So without further ado, here is Lara. Lara, how are you? I am so good. How are you? I'm so excited to talk to you. I feel like I've been waiting for this for months and months and months to be able to have this conversation (laughs) with you. I know. I am so glad you asked. Thank you so much. Uh, There's so much to cover. So I'm just going to dive right into the deep end as I do with people for these recovery conversations. So tell us your addiction story and really just, you know, what did it look like? How did you know that you needed to get help? If you feel like you had a rock bottom, tell us what that all looked like.
1: Yeah, so it's a little bit different than most because I didn't really start drinking or using until I turned 21. And my main addiction was prescription pills. However, I obviously binge drank and had issues with that as well. But what happened is at 21, I was prescribed an opiate for a minor surgery. Oh, no. I had just, I just completed school. I was planning to go to graduate school and I was studying for the GMAT. So I was working as a server and I just recently also started drinking. I had drank before, but I didn't really start like the binge drinking until I was 21. But that was the first time where I remember taking a pill for a non-medical reason, like where it made me feel... Relaxed, calm. It got me out of myself and it allowed me to stop having so much fear and stress about the future because I would say that my first addiction was validation. I was always so obsessed with what everyone else thought of me and I really wanted to please my parents. I really wanted to make them proud of me and I also wanted other people to like me. So that pill just allowed me to step out of my own thoughts, Mm -hmm. but I didn't really get addicted to it. I was in Arizona at the time. I ended up moving to California and then over the summer between my first and second year of graduate school I went to Mexico for a family vacation and I looked for an opiate or a pain pill in the drugstore because I thought you'd get them over in Mexico and they just prescribed me this drug tramadol which is supposed to be a non-narcotic pain reliever and I ended up Like, I was taking a pill a day for about a month, and for me, that was something that (laughs) was just totally out of my character. So I stopped taking it, and then I got depressed, not realizing that it was from the withdrawal of stopping this pill. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up going to a psychiatrist at my grad school. I told him, I'm like, you know, I think I'm addicted to this pill. I was very honest that I felt I was abusing it, that I hadn't been prescribed them, and he prescribed me Xanax, Ambien, and an antidepressant. Jesus. And <laughs> and, and so he didn't really address the like the underlying issue. He's just basically like, okay, you're anxious, you can't sleep, you're depressed. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like, I took my antidepressant. I didn't really abuse the pills, or I didn't abuse the pills at all. You know, I took them as prescribed, and I really didn't even take the Xanax that often. So I was kind of like, "Ah, eh, that, is, that issue's totally gone. Not a big deal." I ended up completing my graduate program. I got a really great job at a cable network, which was my dream job, and the reason I moved to California. So I was really ambitious and a high achiever, but there was so much focus on my career, and again, outside appearances. So, you know, a couple years go by, I'm not necessarily abusing the prescriptions. I get engaged to my boyfriend. He's going to be a lawyer. And that's pretty much the reason like why I was interested in him in the first place, because I thought, oh, if he's, <laughs> he's going to be a lawyer, you know, we're going to be this hot couple. And so we went back to Arizona and there was there had already been like physical and verbal abuse. But when we moved to Arizona, it got really intense. And so we ended up breaking up. I moved to Texas. To be with my family for a little bit and then I ended up going back to California I got in a car accident in California when I was working in television production and so I got prescribed more opiates than you could really imagine and so that got me back into this cycle of opiate use my addiction didn't really begin until about a year later I had just landed this great job as a VP of sales for this entertainment group and me being someone who's obsessed with my career that was like oh I'm finally everything's back everything's going to be okay and then a couple days before I was supposed to start the investors pulled out and so they couldn't bring me on and so I've been keeping in touch with a psychiatrist that I had met from my graduate school and so you know I went over to my friend's apartment. I was like, Oh my God, I want to die. And I honestly like I really did feel like my life was over, even though it seems so minuscule. But to me, it was a huge deal at the time. And so they just advised me to call my psychiatrist. And I did. And I told him I wanted to die. I said I was suicidal. And he said he had the answer for me. And I didn't know what that was. But he said it was a pill. And the next day, I drove up to the pharmacy. He didn't ask me to meet with them. I picked it up. And it was Adderall. And as soon as I was prescribed Adderall is when my life became insanely chaotic. And for someone who grew up, you know, upper middle class, going to graduate school, like having... A really great career. Adderall really took me down. It took me down quick. I ended up in drug induced psychosis, paranoid. I thought my roommate was fine on me. I was in and out of rehabs for the next four years. I got into heavier drugs. I had tried meth. I did cocaine, but really it was Adderall. That was my drug of choice. So I think I had so many rock bottom moments that I, I mean, can't even go into all of them. But really, it was a four or five year long addiction, but it was so heavy and so intense that it could have been just over the time of 20 years, everything that I experienced within those five years.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So quick question in all of that, and it's not, you know, like a quick question, you can answer it in like five seconds, but <laughs> yeah. but with all those addictions, do you feel like, the behavior or the substance for you is just the symptom? Like, what do you think? I know that you mentioned that it was, you know, your addiction to approval and validation. What do you think the real problem was that you were trying to solve through your symptoms of addiction?
1: Yeah, I think there's two sides to it. Like, first of all, I think if a doctor is prescribing you a substance that's highly addictive and doesn't give you any warning or properly, like, diagnose you, and you start taking it and you get addicted, like, obviously, that's an issue with the drug itself. However, why was I going to—why did I want to feel something different? Why was that enjoyable to me? Mm -hmm. And the other part is that, yes, I had my own— Underlying issues where I had trauma in my life that I didn't even know I had. I was a perfectionist. I was a high achiever. I was in competition with others. I just, and it was validation and wanting people to be proud of me and wanting people to look at me like I was successful. And I equated. Happiness was success. Okay. Happiness didn't have anything to do with my fam- Like it did a little bit, right? My family and my friendships and the relationships that I had in my life and how I was treating others. But honestly, the minute I wasn't successful was the moment that I was very, very depressed. And so when I experienced that, I sought
0: for something outside of myself to fill that emptiness. That's so interesting. And I've been having many conversations on this podcast in the recovery series. And I think the majority, if not all of my guests are like you, you know, and and it's a lot, the majority of my listeners, it's this middle class or upper middle class woman who doesn't necessarily have, and some of them do, and I I don't want to invalidate anybody who has had trauma that she's conscious of and things like that. That certainly does happen. But for many of the listeners and people out there listening to the story, they didn't. And I think that there's I think for many of us, we wonder like, well, what was it? Like, why am I running away from my life? Why am I trying to numb out all of this stuff? And I love the way that you explained it. And for me personally, it was just, I didn't want to feel any of my feelings. Like they were too, you know, as a, I identify as a highly sensitive person. I think most people are, (laughs) I think that most of us are sensitive because we're not brought up and like taught and and even just having the conversation of like, what does it feel like to feel not good enough? What does it feel like to feel like you don't measure up or or feel like you are not good enough, et cetera, et cetera. Don't you think?
1: Yeah, I definitely do. And the inter- and I wanted to mention one point about that too, is that when I first was trying to get sober and going into recovery, I didn't know why I even started like abusing drugs or why I turned into the woman I did with this addiction. Like I hadn't analyzed my history prior to my addiction and really understood what was expected of me, what I pushed on myself. Like I uncovered that through the process of recovery. And that allowed me to have a better understanding of exactly why like the drugs and the
0: booze and the men took me down as hard as they did. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. And I'm glad that you said that because I think that for a lot of women, We get to a point where we're like, okay, I probably need to get sober. And then maybe we even venture into it a little bit. And we hear stories or even in the media, we hear like massive rock bottom stories, right? Or maybe even they don't have a rock bottom in their adult life, but they had some kind of trauma in the beginning where it all, I think what I'm trying to say is like, it all makes sense, right? (laughs) Yeah. For a lot of us, we're like looking around, like, and feeling, I, I know I felt that my story wasn't bad enough, that I wasn't quote unquote, one of them. And I think that that keeps a lot of people sick. I think that keeps a lot of people in their symptoms.
1: Yeah, I think it does too, because I didn't have some big traumatic experience. And so when I got addicted, I almost felt guilty about being addicted. Like, why is someone who was given so much, and I truly did have the most wonderful family, and I was really loved so much. Why am I causing this chaos in my life? And so you have to really uncover your own life. And it doesn't matter... How your past, how bad was it or how good was it? Like that's all relative. And Mm -hmm. so everyone has their own unique individual story, but I do think it's important to look at and address why you started abusing or using drugs or alcohol in the first place because I remember in the 12-step room when I first got sober, or it was in treatment, but they had told me, you know, it doesn't matter why you started using drugs, like, just work these 12 steps and you'll be in recovery. And for me, someone who's incredibly curious, that wasn't enough for me. Like, I had to know why. Mm -hmm. And I have to know why and how come about everything. But I think it's important in order for me to, like, fully recover and heal, for me to take a look at my own actions and my behaviors and... Where that led me.
0: Yeah. I know that if you do 12 step programs, a lot of emphasis is put on spirituality and, you know, it being a spiritual problem. And I struggled with that a little bit because at that time I was going through a pretty big spiritual transition. I grew up going to church and being a Christian, and I wasn't sure if that's what I identified with anymore. And yeah. so that was a little bit confusing, I think, and it can be, but I replaced the word spiritual with emotional and that really changed everything. Like I felt like I had an emotional yeah. problem. I was stunted. Yeah. That's very smart. I hadn't heard that before. I have just been thinking about it lately, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, because that's very wise. It's easy to feel Different, You know, sometimes when you're in those rooms and they have strict rules and guidelines and things like that. But I want to kind of switch gears and talk to you about love addiction. We've had one other guest on. I will pop that link in the show notes for people who want to hear more about this. But in terms Uh of love addiction, because it's something I struggled with a lot in my 20s and didn't even know about it. So just to get you up to speed and, and people listening, you know, I got sober in 2011 from alcohol. But before that, I was a severe codependent, and it was something that my therapist even mentioned. You know, I had seen her for years, and she recommended you know Melody Beattie's book, and I read it, and I was like, "Ew, this is my life. I don't want to read about this." And (laughs) I was not ready to take any responsibility. I was still in a place of like, "No, it's everybody else's fault." And then that morphed into love addiction, and I didn't even realize that that's what I was doing until I had a relationship fall apart. Part badly. It was my second one in a row when I was thirty-one and went to the meadows for family week with him. And they were talking about love addiction, and I picked up a book there about it. And then that was the moment where I was like, "Oh my god!" And there's like tables in there where it shows the cycle, and I was like, it was slightly horrifying (laughs) to read about it and realize that that's not normal, and also a little bit of a relief. So tell me what yours looked like and how it kind of overlapped with your other addictions. So I definitely wouldn't say that I was
1: codependent. I would identify as a love addict. However, I had no idea what love addiction was or that it was even, uh, you know, something that was around. And what that looked like, first, how I identified it was the second and third time I went to treatment, I got kicked out for getting in a relationship with a male. Mm-hmm. And the first time I went to treatment, the reason I relapsed is because pretty much I was hanging out with this guy that I had become obsessive over. But what I found is that I had been getting high off amphetamines for, you know, four years and then I had to get sober and I had to start feeling my feelings and I had to like look at where my life was at that moment and where it had taken me. And I didn't want that. I didn't want to look at those feelings. And so I found that I could distract myself by getting obsessive over a person, a man. And so that's what I did. And so. The last and final time I entered treatment, I went to a program for both love addiction and substance use disorder. But the majority of my focus, honestly, in that program was on love addiction. I remember a doctor who was a former sex addict at the treatment center had said to me, Lara, you are never going to get sober if you don't deal with your issues with men. And although I didn't want to hear that at the time, Mm -hmm. it stuck with me. And so I had to go to sex addicts and almost had the treatment. We had so like,
0: I'm going to for a second. Do you think that those okay. are the same thing? Because I have issues that they love, that 12-step <laughs> programs lump that together, sex addiction and love addiction. I'm really super no, curious. Like, I don't think they're the same thing
1: at all. Yeah, some of the behaviors can be similar, just like they can be similar to why we use. But I found that it was not the best for me to be, like, hanging out with the men who had sex addiction issues and right. were explaining some of the most. <laughs> That's like, why I didn't I, like the meetings. I feel for them. Yeah, but they were kind of horrifying stories in which I didn't relate at all. And so I was like one of two women in formed with a group of sex addicts who had love addiction issues. So those groups, like, while it was very interesting to listen to their own stories of sex addiction, I didn't identify with that. And so... They had tons of love addiction books, but I started like just every night just going through and reading those books like page by page and being like, oh, that's me. That's me. And I finally started recognizing like everyone's telling me that I have this issue, then I probably do have this issue and I better take a look at it. So I was taking a look at it, but I wasn't necessarily stopping my behavior like, At my last treatment center, I had sex with a guy three weeks in, and they threatened to kick me out over and over. If I didn't stop, they tried to put me on this contract called No Mail, where you couldn't talk to guys, and I was not abiding by that. But then, when I left treatment, I went to Sex and Love, Sex and Love Addicts. SLA, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are more women. I ended up getting a sponsor, like a a female sponsor. I started working through the book. But it was like, (laughs) you have to identify bottom line behaviors, like behaviors that you can't cross. And some of them would be like flirting or talking to a guy that my sponsor wanted. And that was just, I started going crazy inside because I was like, Oh my God, am I flirting? How am I sitting? What yeah, is like, and then you're obsessed with I, that. <laughs> I, yeah. And, and so it was too much, but I still worked on it and I stayed out of a relationship for a year, but I do think my love addiction was about power. Whereas some mm. people is more creating something different, but mine was like, I want to get you and I want to own you and I want to be in charge of you so that I can feel powerful. Yeah. That was the way that how my love addiction looked. And as I went through it, for example, at the treatment center, I had to go through a relationship history and look at all my past relationships. And I saw how they were stacked like one after the other. And so it had always been a habit of mine to once I broke up with someone, then I was already like on the hunt for another person.
0: Mm-hmm. I call it the <laughs> and, ledge. Yeah. We had a name for it, me and my girlfriends. Oh, you did it? That's awesome. Yeah. And I remember, like, even in high school
1: with my first love, like, if we would get in a fight, I would try to find another guy to flirt with and talk with on the phone all night. So it had been, like, in my history, again, something I didn't look at or didn't see or didn't recognize
0: until I finally had to start addressing it. That's so interesting. Okay. So I think I might be helpful for the listeners if we kind of break down a little bit more, even what it looked like. So for me, it was when you said that you had to do a relationship inventory, my stomach just dropped. I was like, (laughs) Oh my God. Like I quickly just like went through the Rolodex in my head and just, I call it like a graveyard of like littered, broken hearts, mine and others. But yeah. For me, what it looked like is, and for the, for the majority of my love addiction symptoms, career, if you want to call it that, I was in a relationship. I was in a long-term relationship from the time I was 17 until the time I was 31. And there were a handful of times in there that we broke up. And of course, any time I actually got the balls to break up with him, it was because I had someone else, right? I never did it just because, you know, he treated me poorly and we were a terrible match. But throughout that whole relationship, we were both unfaithful to each other. And I think that we were unfaithful for different reasons. I can't, you know, I can't speak for him. But for mine, it definitely was a combination of things. So my story is similar to yours in the power aspect. Like I wanted to. I felt like I didn't have any power or control of my life at all. So this is how I did it. This is how I gained power through men. And that the chase and, like, that new relationship was unlike any other high I could get from any other substance. Like, that... And to be honest with you, I was talking to my friend, Courtney Webster. She's been on the recovery podcast before we were having a conversation about comorbidity and multiple addictions. And I forget how the conversation came up, but she said, if you could go back to any of your addictions, which one would you go back to? Like without any repercussions. And I said, hands down, love addiction. That to me was unlike anything else. It's the power. I also, you know, now that I've done more like shame work and dug deeper on it, I confused intensity with love. It's this really great meme that someone sent me. And it says a person who never learned to trust confuses intensity with intimacy, obsession with care and control with security. And I was like, "Yeah, oh that completely summed up what my entire decade of my late teens and my entire twenties was. I didn't yeah. trust myself and I didn't trust other people. So I thought, My long relationship was really high highs and really low lows. I think that I was addicted to that too. I was addicted to chaos, which also didn't make any sense either because I didn't grow up seeing that. Like I (laughs) I know, no, I feel you on that one. Yeah. And obsession with care. I was obsessed with fixing him and fixing our relationship. I would write papers for him. I had like an entire spreadsheet for his College. It was like color coded oh by semester. <laughs> it was ridiculous. And control was security. I was addicted to control. I wanted to control everything in my life, especially him. And when I couldn't, yeah. because I couldn't, because he's another human being, it would drive me bananas. And then I would act out. And then it just was this cycle that we went through and over years and years and years. And it was, it's painful to think about. And I got my own validation through other men. I'm like, okay, if I'm not going to get it from you know, this man that I was in a relationship with, I would go out with my girlfriends and, and find someone who would validate me. And then as soon as it would get a little bit more serious, i.e. you know like this person that i was dating or sleeping with or whatever would want and they always knew that i had a boyfriend i never lied about that
1: when they would want
0: something more like a relationship or you know ask me like are you gonna break up with your boyfriend i'd be like nope see ya and on to the next person (laughs) yeah yeah it just was ugh it was just
1: yeah i identify okay so i identify with a lot of what you said the one thing love and intimacy like I equated that with that obsessive high that you get in the beginning of a relationship where like my thoughts are on him 24 seven. I think he's the perfect person for me. Like I'm writing him, you know, poetry and I think I'm going to be with him for the rest of my life. And then like, (laughs) yes, he's the one. And it's like, and then when that starts like going into like I guess what other people would say a normal part of a relationship like that you know that time is over the honeymoon period is over like I get bored I start like questioning him I find faults in him and I want to move on to the next so it was very hard for me to really and I think I'm still learning to understand what like romantic love and intimacy really looks Mm -hmm. like because for so long I identified it as
0: you know that obsession yeah As opposed to true connection. Mm -hmm. My therapist pointed that out to me, the same therapist that I had forever and ever and ever when I was first with my now husband and I was calling her about something and crying about something. And she said, Andrea, you know, she knew me since I was 18. And she's like, I don't (laughs) think that you truly know what real love, trust and intimacy looks like. And what that connection looks like. And that's why I was so drawn to Brene Brown's work. I'm like, what is this? Like, tell me what this looks like. And so I can try to hack into it and figure it out in my own life. And I don't think that I... Before, you know, back then I wasn't ready to actually like look at the hard stuff and have the time, you know, because we, really what it is, is like it's built in small increments over time. It's built by sharing these vulnerable parts of ourselves in our lives, like showing our quote unquote, what we deem as like unlovable parts of ourselves, like a mutual thing in a relationship. And that happens slowly over time. It's not intense. It's not chaotic. And that was new to me. I was like, oh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yes. As exciting as I had made it all out to be. <laughs> yeah. How long have you been with your husband? Oh my gosh, eleven years. Okay. Yeah. And so I guess through that relationship, it, you obviously learned what it is and what it's it looks been a like. Slow process. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we both walked in brokenhearted, and you know from previous things, and he's just been great and patient and. About it all, but it's been and it really started to uncover when I got so because we'd already been married in 2011 when I got sober, and that's really when it kind of all, as I like to say, exploded in my face in terms of just yeah, yeah. really feeling my feelings and like stuff that I hadn't dealt with from years and years prior that I had shoved under through drinking, and so yeah, that's what it looked like for me. Yeah, yeah. All right. So switching gears a little bit, you wrote a post on your blog, which we will, of course, link to in the show notes. And it was called to the woman who asked me how to quit. And in that post, you say quit talking about quitting and actually quit. So can you kind of walk us through that? Or do you have any more advice for this?
1: Yeah, I don't want to come off insensitive because I do have like compassion for people who are going through this process. But There's a lot of people who take a very long time, like looking into sobriety and being curious about it and trying to work on it, but they don't actually put down like the bottle or the drink or the drug. Mm -hmm. And so... While it does help you start changing your behaviors and your thinking, like, the, the tough shit comes when you actually, like, have to put away the thing that is your main point yeah. of addiction and life. Like, that's really what I find. That's truly, like, when the hard shit gets real. And so everything you might have learned while you were still drinking, like, you can start integrating that now. But also, like, there were times when I was still, like, getting high. You know, and reading about addiction or recovery and trying to like and will myself to want to quit. Like, I wanted to quit, but I didn't want to stop the feeling of what it was giving me. And at that point, I was highly, highly sorry, I'm laughing. It's just no, it's funny. Perfect world, right? Um, I mean, I was highly addicted anyway. So, some people's stories are different, but I think that. If we want to stop drinking, then we have to stop drinking. Mm-hmm. We want to stop getting high, then we have to stop, like, the actual behavior of what we're doing.
0: Well, One the point when it says if you want to change your life, you have to actually change your life. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right.
1: That's a good, yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Like, it just delays the process of becoming. Yeah. I just, forgot who said that, but it's like it delays the process of becoming and you want to become.
0: Yeah. It reminds me of like somebody who puts on their bathing suit and goes to the beach and like stands there on the sand while everybody's in there like playing in the waves and everything. And they're like, I really want to go and do that, but I would just want to do it from right here. Like you can't. Yeah. You actually have to go in and get your hair wet. And that can be so incredibly scary. And my advice for those people is just try 30 days. And this is the advice I got when I first called Courtney and was like, I think I have a problem. And I think I need to look into getting sober. And I was so scared, like, that that was it. You know, like, okay, then that's it forever. And she's like, just do 30 days and see what happens. And I think the point of that is it's not really about the quitting drinking so much in that 30 days. It's about seeing what comes up. When you do right. it, like, where does your mind go? How does your body feel? All of that, the thought patterns, the behaviors, et cetera. And personally, I lasted six days and hated every minute of those six days was completely yeah. knuckling. It hated her for giving me the assignment, hated everybody who was breathing. So that was telling, you know, that's like, okay, now I really do have a problem. Cause I wonder for those people who, you know, you were talking about who don't actually quit. I wonder if they're wondering if they really need to. You know? Yeah,
1: yeah. And I know, as you probably do now, too, like thousands of women who quit, they didn't have a problem with drinking. They just saw how their life got better without it. And so if your life is better without a substance, and you start to realize that and how much better it can become, then it gets easier just to stop doing the drinking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I know a lot of people here listening don't have that tragic rock bottom story. And I say over and over again, I think it's worth repeating that you don't need one. You very well will eventually get there. And I think that everybody's rock bottom looks different. I didn't have a rock bottom drinking story. I had a rock bottom, you know, codependency and love addiction story, which brought me to my knees and, you know, holding a positive pregnancy test and like that whole shebang, but it wasn't yeah. until, so that was in 2006, December of 2006 that that happened. And then I didn't get sober until 2011. So I think that your rock bottom can look like whatever it looks like. Like it might just be your thoughts, you know, that that's, that's enough. And you're Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. You, don't, you don't even need to identify as an addict or an alcoholic. You could, like you were just saying, like, oh. you just, you know, you have a problem and your life is better without it.
1: Yeah. Or you don't have a problem. Like, are you identify someone who doesn't have a problem, who just has a glass of wine every now and again, and then puts it away for 30 days and then realizes like, damn, like my life got a lot more beautiful. I'm a lot more present, whatever happens in those 30 days. And so you can just put it down forever.
0: Yeah. I actually had, I don't know if what it was like for you, but I had more anxiety when I quit drinking and didn't have anything else to do. So for me, that looked like, and I know it's not for everyone, but for me, it looked like recovery meetings. Like I needed something to do with the time and the spinning that my head was going through. Cause that's a lot of the reason that I, I drank for a lot of reasons, but one of them was just to like quiet the spinning. And I've struggled with anxiety forever and wasn't on medication than have been in the past. But I just, I drank I- because I wanted a mini vacation from myself and my life. I couldn't bear the everyday crap and the minutia and all of that. And then of course buried underneath was like all the other stuff I didn't want to deal with <laughs> that I didn't wasn't yeah. totally conscious of. But I think that some kind of recovery is necessary to help.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that looks differently, like it could look different. I do think like connection with others For me, it was important for them to be in recovery, but like connection, for example, like in a yoga group or at CrossFit, like with people who are trying to better their lives or and who are in the same headspace as you are, yeah, like. And and again from my story's a bit different. I was incredibly addicted. So like when I when I stopped using like my my, mind was like, Oh, you better go get high, you better go get high, you better go get high, and that's how it talked to me all the time. So I did have to stay when I got out of treatment, like incredibly engaged in my own recovery process. And what that looked like for me was I was like in my spare time, I was reading, I was going to a meeting at least five times a week. I was working with two different sponsors, I had a therapist. I was in sober living with a group of women who were doing the same thing as me, and I was working about 35 hours a week. But I needed that because they were small wins, so they were actually really big wins because I finally started recognizing myself in the mirror and becoming the person whom I always have been, but just hadn't seen in so very long.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. I want to ask you one more question as we wrap up. And can you tell us one thing that you're really proud of right now and one thing that you are struggling with?
1: Yeah. Well, I think I'm most proud right now that I'm going to be four years sober in a month. Nice. Congratulations, early. Yes. I'm very proud of that because like when I look at my life four years ago, I never would have imagined what it would look like today. And so I'm truly, truly proud of how far I've come. I am struggling with time. I've been listening to Oprah's podcast and it's like, I believe the most important gift you can give yourself is time, mm -hmm. time to be more more fully present. (laughs) I feel like I don't have time. I know that's an excuse, but I haven't worked, I don't know, a nine to five job, but it's more than just nine to five. Anyway, I work in the treatment industry and so it's very stressful and I'm used to having like a lot more time for myself and learning
0: how to manage my time is a really big struggle for me right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I always like to just be really transparent, as transparent as possible with the people listening. And thank you so much for sharing your story. These stories are so incredibly important. You know that as much as I do. And I'm just grateful for you and for this conversation.
1: I am too. And thank you so much for opening up more about yours and... Just being willing to have me on and, and to have these conversations because I think they're so incredibly helpful. Yeah. They truly, really, truly
0: are. My goal is to put a face on addiction and alcoholism. And, you know, even if you don't identify with those words, I think that for so long we have in the media, you know, we are, and we just have these myths of what it actually looks like. And the, I think the more right. stories that come out of like regular people, uh, whatever that looks like, you know, but just everyday yeah. people that are your neighbors and people that you are friends with on social media and, you know, go to your yoga class, like, people would be surprised, like how many of us actually struggle. So thank you for that. And just a quick reminder, everybody, that that we start on Monday for the free book club. If you have purchased a copy of my book, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, either on audiobook, hard copy, or e-reader, head on over to yourkickasslife.com slash H-T-S-F-L-S to claim that bonus. And all the links are in the show notes that we mentioned here on this podcast, including Lara's website and everything. Thank you again so much, my dear. And to everyone out Thank there listening. You Thank know. you for your time here on the podcast and all the other episodes. And until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye bye. Hey, ass kickers, you know, it would help me out. So much if you left a rating and review for this podcast. Your Kick-Ass Life podcast will always be free to you and to help me get more awesome guests and to spread the word, it helps tremendously if you leave a rating and a review. Now, they don't particularly make this super easy to do, so I'll help you out a little. If you're in iTunes and you're on your phone, when you are in the podcast app, you need to search for Your Kick-Ass Life podcast. I know, even if you're subscribed, this 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 is how you do it. So when you search for it and you see it come up, click on the cover art, then towards the top where it says reviews, click that, scroll down a tiny little bit, and then click write a review. Stitcher is a bit easier if you're on Android. The easiest way I found to do this is to type into Google stitcher.com your kick-ass life and voila, my podcast should pop up as the first link. Scroll down and click write a review. That's it. Thank you so very much much. You have no idea how much it helps me when you do that. All right. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.